0: We are Casey and Holly Dawn, and this is our story.
1: In August 2006, Holly and I had a profound financial awakening, and we have never looked back. Two and a half years into our marriage, we conceded, threw in the towel, and decided we do not have this money thing figured out, and it has to change.
0: We started our marriage handling money like our parents did separate bank accounts and overly complex bill paying strategies. We had credit card debt and car payments. We had no budget, no goals, no idea what we were doing, even despite Casey's business finance degree. Casey was struggling with sleepless nights, worried about how we were going to pay for everything. Meanwhile, I had been keeping secret from him in the form of credit card debt that he knew nothing about. The secrecy was eating away at my heart and my mind. When he found out, I remember feeling humiliated, embarrassed, and ashamed. I wasn't sure how he was going to forgive me. Looking back, that was a real turning point for both of us. I asked both Casey and God for forgiveness, and I was shown an extreme amount of love and grace. From that point forward, we vowed to make some changes, and God took us on quite a journey. A friend of ours cued Casey into this obscure radio show host named Dave Ramsey. (laughs) The guy had some interesting viewpoints, so Casey read Total Money Makeover during a road trip 10 years ago. I'm glad he read it. We prayed over our financial situation, joined our finances, made some cute little envelopes, started using a calculator at the grocery store, stopped impulse buying, and started really being thankful for what we had and the blessings we were given. I can't say it was easy. We had to break some bad habits, but we did it.
1: Our story may not seem unique in its origin, but we feel it has evolved past the point of being mundane, and it now seems exciting to us. We have found that the route to financial joy and peace comes through simplification and obedience to God. Uh, fortunately, we we're able to tie 10 percent faithfully. We use cash for most of our purchases. On more than one occasion, a cashier has even asked me, "Hey man, what's up with the envelope and the wallet?" And <laughs> I even had a nice uh, high school student just a few weeks ago at Shields get very excited to see my envelope and ask me if I know about Dave Ramsey. I just smiled and nodded to him. Every two weeks, we hit up the ATM for cash, get a big old stack of 20s, and divide them up in our envelopes. And we don't carry credit cards, and 40% of our income is able to be applied towards debt or saving and improving our net worth. We pay cash for vehicles, vacations, and big home repairs. We save all year round, specifically for Christmas. We continue these practices through graduate school, having our boys, and still continue the process today. We often get weird looks from our family and friends when they hear about our practices, but it doesn't phase us or trip us up one bit.
0: We're not telling our story to impress others or to get a pat on the back. We want to tell our story to give thanks to God, to hopefully inspire others to make a change for the better. We see the stress and turmoil money can have on our family and our friends, and we want them to know there really is another way. We remember how it felt living in the illusion of control, not realizing that it was money that was controlling us, our thoughts, desires, motives, and sense of self-worth.
1: God is absolutely the center of our finances. We pray specifically for wisdom, and he answers. It starts with tithing 10% of our income. It is the first line item in our budget. And it's the first, number enter- ent- the first number entered into the online bill pay system. It is regular, it is big, secondary only to our mortgage payment by just a little. It is very satisfying and it is a privilege. Tithing has taught us forgiveness, grace, confidence and trust. Although it is amazing to help our church, that is not the sole purpose for our tithing. We do not tithe so that we can dictate where the money goes or how it is used. We do not tithe so that we can tell others how much. We tithe simply because God asks us to. And much like forgiveness, tithing does more good for the giver than it does the receiver. Since our awakening, God's blessings have been numerous and in many forms, financial, relational, and spiritual. We give thanks to God for those blessings. Looking back, we have learned so much about ourselves, for instance, financial success, is 80% behavior and only 20% knowledge. Also, it's about the long game. Our small decisions now add up and continue to manifest as blessings in the future. We have learned to differentiate wants from needs. God has taught us to tame envy and greed. We have also learned to dump the payment mindset and adopt a new net worth mindset, aka saving.
0: Casey and I have changed a lot over the years. Gone are the nights when Casey would lie in bed wondering how we will make the next debt payment. Gone are the days of skipping tithe payments to save for some new gadget or wanted item. Gone are the days of secrets, fighting over expenditures, accounts, collection calls, overdraft fees, late fees, and credit card interest. We give thanks to God for the blessings he has given us. We thank him for grace, forgiveness, and wisdom he has provided. We thank Him for the discipline and opportunity to faithfully give from the financial resources He has provided to us. All, all of what we have belongs to Him. We are Casey and Holly Dawn, and this is our story.
2: Nice work, guys. Thanks. Well, thanks to the Dons for uh, sharing their story. Um, I'm sure... Um, a little bit of mileage on that over the years helps the story go down well. Uh, I can't imagine what the story would have been like, what, back in 2007 or something like that. Uh, maybe more of a uh, therapy session than um, a victorious story. So we appreciate your sharing with us. And, and a lot of it, uh, I want to talk about, we're in the middle of talking about money here for three different Sundays, and we'll conclude it next week before we head into the Christmas season Uh, And this week is one of these um, messages that every so often, at least every couple of years, one of us, Garrett or myself or Marta, will go off on debt. And uh, lucky you, you happen to be here on that morning. So let's just begin by acknowledging that America is one of the richest countries. It's not the richest, I think Sweden is, but uh, at least as far as lifestyle goes. But we are way at the very top, and yet, and yet our culture drowns in debt. It sounds incredible, but it's true. In a book called The Indebted Society, uh, Anatomy of an Ongoing Disaster, economists James Metoff and Andrew Harless point out that just one generation ago, a family in America enjoyed real growth in income real growth in income, and only borrowed money for a very few specific items to buy a house or a car or finance a college education. A house, a car, or a college education. Only one of those is actually depreciating. The other two are considered assets. But today, debt has spun out of control. Medoff and Harless point out That families now go into debt to maintain lifestyle, which is a massive shift. We go into debt to maintain lifestyle. Quoting, they now owe money for their children's education, the television set, the refrigerator, the lawnmower, and the very shirt on their back. The problem, Medloff and Harless say, is that people these days not only borrow money to buy assets such as houses and businesses, but they also borrow money for short-term consumable goods, automobiles, air conditioners, living room furniture, computers, clothing, and even fast food. It's popular these days when someone's doing a mortgage to borrow over 100% of the value of the house. So we can furnish the house with appliances and furniture, all of which are instantly depreciating in value. Or as my father used to say, every time you buy a new car, you lose several thousand dollars you're paying for that showroom dust when you drive it off the lot. You take it back a few seconds later, and they're not going to give you what you paid for it. It's depreciating. It's wearing out. Everything will wear and tear, gain spots and stains, rust and crack. It all recycles, everyone. In other words, people will take their 30-year house mortgage and roll in a nine-year sofa to it. They'll continue to pay another 21 years on the sofa, which by now has long been donated to the thrift store or given to some charity or just sits at the curb and goes to the, family or to the city landfill. Now, why does a church then, just to stop for a second, why does a church want to talk about this sort of thing? Where's the spirituality in all of this? I'm just here to say that money is tremendously spiritual. A massive percentage of the Bible talks about possessions and money as it relates to the soul. This is very soulish work. Money, debt, and savings are are very, very spiritual issues. And you cannot look very far in the Bible before it begins to talk about money. So that's why the church talks about it. It's not just because we want your money or anything like that. God doesn't need your money. God needs you to deal with your money, to make you into a human being. Money can be used for good or for bad. So let's just get something clear as far as the Bible's opinion of money. And I gave you sort of a cheat sheet, uh, this sort of handout, the study notes. So go ahead and look at that for your Bible verses as well as a couple other things on there. The very first verse on there says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice the Scripture says that money is not all evil. No, it's the root of some kinds of evil. Money is not evil in and of itself. So let's get our theology straight here. Money is not evil, but the love of money leads to some types of evil if not all kinds of griefs. You see the evil money can bring is a spiritless addiction and bondage is the way scripture tends to talk about it. This church talks and teaches about money because Jesus wants us to be free. We are all against slavery and bondage. And when money enters into it and we fall into that, we can no longer pursue the good life. And that's why it's always a spiritual issue. So Let's deal with this thing and get into some details here. So so stick with me and look at your kind of crib notes here to find out what what I'm talking about. If you want to get at the real culprit of debt in our society, we need to look no further than the credit cards in your wallet. I hope that all of us realize that. In 1969, consumer credit card debt totaled $2.7 billion. 2.7 in 69. In 1994... The total stood at $74 billion, $2.7, up to $74 billion. And a few years ago, the average balance on, on, per household in America with only one credit card <laughs> was $8,500 of revolving consumer debt. It had an average interest rate of 14.74%. All of this is on your piece of paper. And some of you might be thinking, like, well, that's actually a pretty good rate. That's just one card, right? So look at the chart in your notes and you'll see how this thing's gonna work out. Look at it because you got the same average balance, the same interest rate, but the difference is what? A hundred and seventy dollar payment or a hundred and twenty dollar payment, a fifty dollar difference, right? Look then therefore at the number of payments it takes to pay off. The $120 versus the $170 payment. Then look at the bottom line on there and look at how much more you will have to pay. Bear in mind the $4,300 um, is in addition to the $8,500 on here. Likewise, the $10,000, well over what the original spending was, is in addition to the $8,500. You have now paid for this by more than double what you originally purchased. Imagine if that happens to be some taco from Taco Bell that you're now paying for for all these years. The moral of the story is simple. Don't go into credit card debt. Pay off your credit cards every month. Never carry a balance, because in these days, it's hard to even get by without a debit card or a credit card, whether you're going to rent a car or do anything else around here. Just pay it off every month. Never carry a balance. This was no more true than for me when I was about 19 years old, and I got a JCPenney's credit card and bought a stereo, which I then paid for for three and a half years. I realized I paid double for the thing, and it freaked me out, and I stopped using the card. Luckily, I learned that lesson pretty early. So you're thinking, who, who are all these silly credit card maniacs out there who can't control their lifestyle addiction? I mean, it's certainly not me. You know, that's what we think, right? Well, let's just take a little check then. All right, let's just do a little test. The Consumer Credit Council offers a test to see if you're in credit card trouble. So let's just take the little test here. You can get your little golf pencil out and see how you do right here in front of you. Answer yes or no to the following questions. somewhere. Number one, have you reached a credit card limit in the past year? That would be the 12 months. Any form of card. Have you reached a limit? Number two, yes or no. Have you only paid the minimum balance twice on a credit card in the past year? Number three, does your credit card exceed 15% of your annual income? A little hard to know. Have you had any basic services turned off because of non-payment over the past year? Your electricity, your water, something like that, received notices from the bank. And number five, do you own more than one personal visa or MasterCard? I guess if you have an Amex, an American Express, you're just fine. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You own more than one credit card, in other words. Now, so if you tally your score and you answered yes to two out of the five, then the Consumer Credit Council says you will have a significant financial or credit issue in the upcoming year. How's that for a prediction? They say five out of six will experience some money problem if you answered yes to two out of five. Author Howard Dayton made this telling comment. The average American drives in his bank-financed car over a bond-financed highway on his credit card gas to open a charge account at a department store to fill his savings-and-loan-financed house with installment purchases of furniture. We're awash in a world of debt that says, it's all just fine. Well, sure, if you're the bank. If you pay off your credit cards every month, you know what they call you, right? You know what Visa and MasterCard calls you. They call you freeloaders if you pay it off every month. You're a freeloader. You're sponging off of them. They want you to stop it right now. Get back to paying that interest. Pay that $10,000 on that $8,500. Makes them very happy. What's the Bible say about all this credit card debt? What's the Bible say about all this? Nada. Not a thing. Nothing. Do you know why? You know why the Bible says nothing about debt like this? Because it was unheard of in biblical times. It wasn't even an issue. Nobody even did it. It was just, it wasn't even a concept. Nobody would have done anything like this way back when. Actually, just even back to Shakespeare's time, 450 years ago. This was still criminal. It was called usury. And the Bible talks against usury. It is a sin. It's a criminal act. It's punishable. No civil person would ever loan anything to anyone else with some sort of extra payment in loaning it. It was inhuman. So here's how the Bible views debt. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7. This one's worth memorizing, by the way. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Proverbs 22, 7. Let's try it. Look at your piece of paper, and let's say it all together. Follow me. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. You hear yourself saying that. Now, the Bible does talk about putting money into banks and receiving interest on savings. But it does not praise making interest. Jesus never had a very high opinion of money. It's more like he didn't really care. He was absolutely free from it. Jesus didn't talk about it. He didn't pay much attention to it. If you read through the gospel and the stories of Jesus' life, we see that the only time that Jesus really gets upset and very angry is when he saw a bunch of bankers conducting business in God's temple, the house of prayer. And he goes off. He's overturning their money tables. He's driving out the goods and services. He's chasing away the greedy. And I would suggest that Jesus saw all wealth as self-serving unless it was in the service of God. In other words, Jesus saw money as in competition with God. Realize, money is one of the few things in the Bible that actually has been given a personified name. It's called mammon. It is a god. You don't find lying or cheating or gossiping having its own name, as though it's some sort of entity or deity. But you do for money, mammon, as though you could worship it. Jesus goes on to make this stabbing pronouncement against money in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 in his Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. Other, You cannot serve God and wealth. It's very clear out of the, word, out of the mouth of Jesus. Jesus viewed every one of us as a slave to something. You're going to be following something. And Jesus said we are either slaves to God or slaves to what we own. This is, rises out of fear, out of security, and that's why it's a deeply spiritual issue. Where's your security? Who do you trust? Now, slavery is not exactly a popular image today, and I kind of hesitate to use it, but it's absolutely accurate when it comes to Scripture and talking about money. The negative view of slavery drives home the point even more, so embrace it. I think Jesus' image here of slavery to stuff is is, as vivid today as it was back in his day. No one wants to be a slave to their washer and dryer. But it's true, we end up being such a thing. Things, we don't own them, they own us. Think about your new sofa or your new carpet. No, 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 no. Nobody touched, get your shoes off that carpet. This goes on in our house all the time. Nobody eat on the sofa. Don't even look at the chair. What is that, a taco in your hand? Get out of here. See this thing going on now? Who's in possession of who? Don't tell my kids I said that. Debt makes for a cruel, cold master, but it can be an, uh, an awesome servant. Friends, there is no worse slavery than slavery to a revolving credit card debt. This is the worst kind of usury that goes on in our society despite what everybody says in culture, that it's acceptable. It is not acceptable in Scripture. It's not acceptable for the Christian life. There is one thing worse than revolving debt, and that's a spiritual debt. Spiritual debt owed to God. Every one of us owes God, everyone. Every one of us is indebted to God. And no matter how much we try and do good deeds, our good deeds are just like paying a monthly minimum payment on a credit card, trying to earn something. And every time we choose to ignore God's purpose and plan for our lives, it's like we're charging something. And we keep an account in our head that we keep piling up on, have I done enough good for God? Have I done enough Was that thing I did this week where I lied about something at work, was that bad? Is that going to count against me? We keep buying self-centeredness, and God says we cannot ever repay it. And people, the Bible says it takes forever to pay off whatever we owe God, literally, all eternity. And there is only one way out of this debt to God. God has to cancel it. God has to cancel our debt. Of course, the great irony of the Christian life is that Jesus Christ and accepting Him is entirely free, but it will cost you everything. The Christian life is entirely free and it will cost you everything. Call it a paradox or whatever you want to call it. The Christian life is entirely free, but it will cost you everything. All of your trust, all of your belongings, all of your beliefs, Everything you have, your marriage, your family, your finances, it will cost you everything. That's the irony, isn't it? God's grace is entirely free, but you can't hold back any corner of your lifestyle. We call this to Christian life, this constant process of the layers of the onion coming off as we give over tons and tons of our life to God. It takes a lifetime. It's entirely free, but it'll cost you everything. Everything. Some of you need to go to professional financial counselors. I'll just say it. You need to ask around, out in the lobby after church, get in the phone book, get on the Internet or whatever else, and find a a counselor. You're saying, like, like anything else like this, you cannot get out of it on your own. You're in trouble, and you need help. And you just have to, like anybody who's in trouble like this, you just have to figure out how miserable you are, as opposed to being comfortable with it. I mean, the average alcoholic drinks because it works. <laughs> right? And I guess your money and your debt is working for you right now. But is it who you want to be? And are you free? Because the dawn's message is, it sounds like a whole lot of freedom coming out of Holly and Casey's story. So that's very powerful stuff. The Apostle Paul says this spiritual debt is just like this. It says that that what has gone on when God cancels this debt, it's like taking all of our loan papers, all of our credit card statements, all of our selfishness, and God nails it to the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the debt security, just to keep the metaphor going. He's the collateral. His death cancels out our debt to God. Here's how the apostle Paul sums it up, and he deliberately uses this metaphor of debt. God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, all of our sins, all of our debts, erasing the record that stood against us with his legal demands, and he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. That cross cancels your debt. man came up to Jesus, a holy, righteous man, and he was working on the installment plan program. Very rich, I might add, and was actually doing quite well at it. Money was his God. And he came up to Jesus He said, I keep all the religious laws. I live by the Ten Commandments. I'm a very devout, righteous person. Which makes you wonder, why is he asking Jesus this one question when he says, what must I do to gain eternal life? In other words, I think what the rich man was asking Jesus is, how do I find contentment? I'll never forget Johnny Carson saying one time, being rich only keeps you from being poor. But it doesn't make you content. And that was this man's problem. And Jesus said, Matthew chapter 19, you'll have to sell everything and come follow me, give it all to the poor and come follow me. It'll cost you everything. And if you know the story, you know the young man went away very sad because he could not part with his money. Not everybody that Jesus ran into was uh, asked to give away everything. Very few Christians are actually asked to do voluntary impoverishment. Maybe some who join a spiritual order or some special person. For the rest of us, what we have to do is learn out who's our master. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said, that man chose his stuff. It was very clear that day, even though he was very religious and kept the Ten Commandments and all of that, who his real God was. Being religious doesn't count. So if you're one of these unfortunate credit card slaves, then get some help. Get on the internet or whatever it takes and get some help. You're going to have to come to terms with just how bad it really is. And then... If that's, and I think that's only actually a very few people at Lakeland. The rest of us, here's the real recommendation. This is the real thing to do. This is the practical thing. The good thing is it doesn't cost you anything. Here's what I found to be helpful, Lori and I found to be helpful. The most effective way to manage money and debt in your life is to find a healthy role model and hang out with them. The problem is in our endless acquisition to get bigger and better. We tend to hang out sometimes with people who are wealthier than us and do fancier vacations than us and own fancier stuff than us and have a bigger house than us. And the problem is it will lure you in. It's not their fault. It's our fault. When you hang out with people who live at a larger lifestyle than you, you want to be with them. You can call it jonesing or whatever you want, but you're going to want to be with them. Instead, hang out with people that, and you'll just have to guess this because it's a little bit of an abrupt question to walk out in the lobby and say, like, hey, how much you guys make? Because I want to see if I want to hang out with you or not. But, or we could just all get markers and write it with a Sharpie on our forehead, you know, 76,000 bucks. That's me. Hey, anybody want to hang out? So um, it actually would probably be a really good idea. Would <laughs> Nobody would ever do it. But, um, but the point is that if you hang out with people who, let's just say this, If they eat at home at least five times a week at night, if they only take one vacation a year, if for entertainment they play board games and card games, if they do things at home, do you realize that if you, uh, as a family of people with uh, school-age children, that if you eat uh, meals five times a week at home, your kids' grades go up? Fix food at home. Find a role model who does not spin like crazy, who buys used cars, and imitate their lifestyle. Hang out with people that live within their means, and you will live within your means. It's very simple. Also, if you hang out then, likewise, with people who are in a ton of debt, they'll begin to rationalize as they're trying to make sense of their life, and you'll begin to rationalize, and you'll go in debt as well. Pick your friends well, everyone. Find a good role model and hang out with them. What people do for fun is a powerful thing. Out in suburbia, it's everything. Find somebody who manages this well. This idea of canceling not just our credit card debt, but also our spiritual debt, this is a powerful deal. Nailing our sins, our debts to that cross, like what Jesus did, this is a powerful image. This idea of who we're going to follow and who is our master, is it God or is it mammon? That's the game. That's the whole game right there. That's why money is so important and so powerful. Um, I'd like to offer up this prayer. And it's a prayer for people who, um, you may think that you've been going to church for years, but you don't really feel like you've ever really sold out. You don't really feel like You've said, like, I know it's going to cost me everything, and I think I, think I need to have a prayer where I, it costs me everything. So would you bow your head and allow me to pray this prayer, and then we'll end up with our announcements, Marta, so if you want to come up. But let's pray. Jesus, I'm amazed that you would bother with me that you would love me and want me to be your friend, your follower. But it sounds like the price is high. And I think I'm trying to wrestle through whether or not I want to pay that price. There's a lot in my life that needs to be cleaned up and I don't feel like I can get it all done right now. I want it nailed to the cross. But what you see is what you get, Lord. And Jesus, if you want to come in to my life and start rummaging around, I'm okay with that. I'm not proud of it, and I'm not sure what you're going to see. I'm not sure I want to see it either. But what you see is what you get. And it sounds like, Jesus, people ask you all sorts of questions, and you dealt with them, and so deal with me. It's just a big tangled mess, and I lay it before you. I want to be alive. I want to be free. I want to be content. And I guess, Jesus, if I was honest, I'm just going to fight you maybe every inch of the way, and I don't want to. So nail it to the cross. Set me free. I want it so badly. And I'm really just looking for a place to begin. Thanks, Jesus. I'm coming to you. And we all said, amen. Lord, uh, we offer ourselves up to you. Like we pray, what you see is what you get. We shove the mess over towards you and say, everything I have is yours. Send us now in peace, especially this week and in the coming weeks. May we love one another in the name of Christ. And we all said, amen. Go in peace.